welcome back for another exciting case discussion. We hope you all enjoyed our last episode and will continue to join us for more cool and challenging cases. Yeah, excited to be back. Ansa, thanks for being back. As you all know by now, you can follow us on our website, poempeeps.com or on Twitter. And this case, like all our other cases, is not meant for medical advice. Some of the details have been changed to be HIPAA compliant. And the views that we're expressing are not those of our employers, but those of us, which we think is pretty important anyway. Monty, how are you doing? Excited for our next case? Hey, Firth. Yeah, super excited. And Ansa, great to have you back um, to join the trio. So excited for you to get started with this. Yeah, super excited for the poem peeps to be all together again. So um, why don't we just dive right into this case? Um, so our chief complaint for today's case is shortness of breath. Um, so we have a 57-year-old man, has a history of hypertension and asthma. He presents with dyspnea and left-sided pleuritic chest pain that has been going on for three weeks. Um, he was in his usual state of health up until about three weeks prior to this admission when he developed some dyspnea and sharp-sided, um, sharp left-sided chest pain that worsens with deep breathing. Um, his symptoms do accompany an unintentional 30-pound weight loss over the past several months, as well as intermittent cough that is non-productive. David Monty, what else would you like to know about this patient? I mean, already this is like really interesting. You have a, a gentleman, he's 57 years old, a little bit older, uh, you know, we'll say middle-aged, uh, hypertension, some asthma, and then three weeks of dyspnea, and then left-sided pleuritic chest pain. So localized to one side, and it's chest pain, it's pleuritic. It definitely helps me sort of narrow my differential. So right away, you know, I think you have to think about PE and anybody who is like this. You maybe had a PE in the past, and it's just been going on. Now I could have a pulmonary infarct that's causing the ongoing pain. I really worry about in patients like this who are like previously healthy and not in the medical system that much, having a pneumonia, like a community acquired pneumonia, went undiagnosed, maybe they tried to shake it off, and then it presented uh, or progressed to an empyema and a pleural fusion, and now you're getting pleural irritation. I've seen a number of people, even younger than this, just sometimes young gentlemen in their 20s and 30s who try to ignore an infection like this, and then they get a big whomping empyema that can cause this type of pain. It's curious in these cases to lay out the dyspnea and then start asking about coughing because sometimes the chest pain can just be musculoskeletal and can just be from lots of coughing that was going on. And so I like to find out if there was a cough associated with the shortness of breath. And if there was, maybe not just musculoskeletal, but maybe has a pneumothorax or he came to the hospital because finally the pain got really bad and he popped a pneumo after coughing a lot. Other things to think of, especially with the ongoing chest pain on that side, pericarditis can kind of do it a little bit unusual um, to have it be presenting without uh, a primary chest pain complaint. But if it's pleuritic and it's in that side, it can definitely do it. Myocarditis sometimes, uh, somebody who has septic emboli could start having shortness of breath and then that could end up having a larger lesions in the lung that irritate the pleura and cause the pain. And then with the three months of weight loss that he has going along with this, you know, 30 pounds. Now I'm thinking about sort of other causes as well of sort of chronic inflammatory diseases. So malignancy, and then maybe now he has a malignant effusion that's causing the pleuritic pain or tuberculosis. You know, TB pleuritis is actually the most common way that it presents worldwide. We don't see it a ton in the United States, but it's definitely got to be high on the differential for this person. So all that being said, those are the things I'm thinking about. The things I want to know is how has this changed in the past few weeks? Did the cough come on at first? Did he have a cough? And then that has worsened the chest pain as it's been going on. Does he have positional things with his dyspnea and chest pain? Could that be uh, pericarditis that I mentioned that's playing into it? Uh, and then what is his asthma history? Uh, you know, I always want to know his past medical history a little bit more. Has he had asthma exacerbations a lot? Could this more acute presentation on top of some chronic underlying lung disease? Yeah, for that was a great overview, definitely of some top differentials for that. And I definitely agree with a 30 pound weight loss um, and a non-productive cough, um, definitely concerned of underlying malignancy or infection. Um, so Ansa, I know that FERF mentioned a couple of other review systems to ask, but I would just add um, in addition to that, any type of fevers, chills, hemoptysis, or any constitutional symptoms. And I wonder, Ansa, if you have any more information about his past medical history and current medications? Yes, 
I um, certainly can add um, uh, a little bit more information. And that's already a great differential, I think, that we have going. Um, so we actually, other than uh, the fact that he self-reports a history of hypertension is on medication for that and reports that he has a history of asthma, we actually don't have any PFDs in our system. Um, uh, so it's sort of a presumed diagnosis and we don't have a lot more information about that. Uh, in terms of his medications, he does take lysinopril 20 milligrams for his blood pressure and he uses albuterol as needed. And he says he's very infrequently had to use it. Um, in terms of the rest of his history, I think um, uh, Dave brought up some great points about sort of like TB risk factors and think, thinking of things like that. So um, he is actually originally from um, the from the Dominican Republic. So um, he's born outside the U.S. and he does travel back and forth frequently. Um, he's a never smoker, does drink alcohol socially, denies any drug use, um, and does not report any um, occupational exposures. About the chronicity of his symptoms, um, he, he says that he has had some um, several months of this uh, intermittent dry cough um, that sort of seemed to precede uh, this left-sided pleuritic chest pain that he's developing now, as well as the shortness of breath that he's experiencing now. He denies um, any sort of subjective fevers and chills, um, hemoptysis, um, and other than the 30-pound weight loss, no other constitutional symptoms. That's all really great information. I think like the social history, past medical history, family history there doesn't give you a huge revealing uh, factors, but sometimes that's helpful in the absence of revealing factors. So, you know, he has a history of asthma and maybe we don't know that much about it. He doesn't have PFTs, but he's only on albuterol as needed. He hasn't had frequent exacerbations that he knows of or hospitalizations. Probably it's not too severe. He's on lisinopril that can cause a drug cough and a dry cough. And like you were saying, that preceded his symptoms, but pretty unusual to have chest pain or dyspnea with that. Um, and a pneumothorax just from a mild cough like that would usually indicate some other underlying lung disease. He's a never smoker, which just helps us with everything. You know, lots of diseases that uh, he's less at risk for uh, certain types of ILD, COPD that could be playing a role in this. And then, you know, his born in the Dominican Republic, there is an area with a higher rate of endemic TB. He's traveling back and forth. He has exposures. That's definitely still on my differential with his weight loss uh, and then his ongoing cough. Mostly I'm struck that he sounds like he's a pretty overall healthy guy and he must be feeling pretty poorly if he came in now. So, you know, certainly if this person was seeing me in my clinic, I would want a pretty quick workup. And, and if they were in the ED, I think probably warrants an admission, no matter what they kind of look like, just for sort of expedited eval, because he sounds like he's not doing too great. Um, so my next step would be to just uh, examine him for sure and see what, what pops up. Okay, that's great. Um, one interesting sort of thing that I had actually looked into because we do see a lot of patients who are from the Dominican Republic and in sort of our community, um, and and it seems like the overall TB risk factor is probably not that much different than what it is like in the United States for Dominican Republic, believe it or not. And actually, you know, areas such as like, for example, if he was somewhere else in the Caribbean, like Haiti, which is like you know much higher risk of like you know. Um, uh, of tuberculosis, almost like as high as like you think of areas such as Sub-Saharan Africa or India or like Southeast Asia. So um, I, I think it's like definitely um, a thought for him with the 30 pound weight loss and definitely it was like on my differential when I was like um, reading about this case. No, that's totally great, Ansa. And I think that's an important thing that comes up is sometimes we hear a travel history somewhere and we just sort of automatically assume some things. And you're, you're totally right. You have to look up on the CDC website uh, or the WHO website what the rates are of different diseases in different places. And they'll definitely help you maybe think of things you haven't thought of. And I agree. It's not like Dominican Republic is someplace where TV is sort of so um, so prevalent that we see it a lot, you know, it's just probably slightly more than we're seeing in the, in the United States general population, but that's really helpful. Totally. You said that basically what I was trying to get across a lot more eloquently. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
So um, as you suggested, we can go ahead and examine this patient. So um, uh, sort of starting with his vitals, he comes in afebrile. He is normal heart rate. His blood pressure is 122 over 78. His breathing uh, respiratory rate is 18, and he's batting 98% on room error. Um, Generally, he does um, appear overall pretty well. His resting comfortably. His head uh, and a neck, uh, head and neck exam is pretty unremarkable. No lymphadenopathy that's sort of noted. Um, his respiratory exam is notable for decreased breath sounds at his left face, and his right lung is uh, clear to auscultation. His abdominal exam is completely unremarkable. Um, on his extremities, he has no edema. He's warm and well perfused. He has no rashes, and his neurological exam is completely normal as well. Thanks so much, Ansa, for reviewing the um, physical exam. And just, you know, starting with his vitals, you know, I think those are pretty much reassuring so far. You know, he's not requiring any supplemental oxygen. You know, the respiratory rate is a little bit on the higher side. Um, You know, I know we see a lot of respiratory rates charted, um, but we have to check ourselves just to make sure that's accurate. And some other things that you mentioned that were were good were that, you know, he seems to be um, comfortable. You know, you didn't specifically say, but assuming from your description, you know, one thing I always like to to ask is or assess is whether or not um, they can speak full sentences um, without any issues. And uh, it appears that he is. Um, but one thing that really stood out to me was the decreased breath sounds at the left base. And when I think of decreased breath sounds, I think of kind of four large categories or reasons why. And the first one is, you know, is there any increased thickness of the chest wall um, that may... Um, be transmitting the sounds um, differently um, and kind of sound more decreased or dull. The second one is there a reduced airflow to part of the lung. Three is there overinflation of part of the lung, and sometimes this can happen with um, severe emphysema or large bullae that are there. And the fourth one is a component of air or fluid surrounding the lung, such as an effusion. And I think a couple of other maneuvers to consider um, here are really to assess for percussion as well as egophony. So for percussion, you know, this is going to be kind of tapping out um, and, you know, on both sides to see if there's any difference. But this really helps determine if there's, you know, air, fluid, or a solid component that could be present. And typically, you know, our normal sounds should be what referred to as resonant, but typically when there's air, you'll hear hyper-resonance. Um, and while there are solid components, you will, hear, you will hear dullness. So for example, if I'm concerned about an effusion where I should be hearing air and I'm actually hearing more of a dull component, I may think that there's something that's going on that shouldn't be there. And the second thing is really to assess for egophony. And this is where you, um, you know, kind of remembering um, basic exam skills, you listen with your stethoscope and have the patient say E. And while you're listening to the lung fields, if consolidation is present, the E turns into more of a high-pitched A sound, which again supports an underlying consolidative process. That's super helpful. Um, and I think sort of like now, uh, full disclosure, a lot of time where we have the chest x-ray available at the same time as when, you know, sometime even before examining the patient, I think like we don't think about this as much, but definitely this is such a good review for myself. I, would, I was just going to say that I feel like, and then now in COVID, you know, throw on the fact that everybody's got layers and layers on and gloves on and you're not percussing as much. And, and I think there are people out there who are even more zealots on the physical exam, you know, certainly than I am and the Monty are like Dr. Garibaldi, who's an absolute pro and can diagnose anything on physical exam. Um, but I think that it's really important to have some level 202 physical exam, you know, percussion and agophony are pretty easy. It's not like uh, trying to me- measure a liver span or look for splenomegaly, an exam maneuver that might be a little more difficult and imaging is just so easy for this. This should be something that we kind of like do all the time if you really have decreased breast sounds there. And then I love the respiratory rate point, Monty. The one thing I always tell people to do and that I try to do is I try to breathe the same rate as the patient. And then it's like just really helpful to me counting in the numbers. I feel like becomes confusing, but if I just try to match their breathing pace, if it's like an overdose, I'm like, wow, they are not breathing at all. (laughs) Or if they're breathing 18 times, I'm like, oh, I'm really having to keep up with this. This is actually, this can't be normal. Oh, wow. I love that. I'm definitely going to be using that, Dave. Uh, So that's great. So why don't we go ahead and review some of the patient's initial labs? Um, 
so starting with his BMP, um, you know, uh, pretty much unremarkable. Like he has a normal, um, you know, electrolyte panel. His um, uh, BUN is 16, creatinine is 1.1, which is presumably his baseline. We don't really have any prior labs from him. He has no anion gap. Um, his calcium, mag, and phosphor also within normal limit. Um, his CBC, he has normal white count uh, at 4.3. His hemoglobin is 14.4. He has normal crit. His platelet count is normal. Um, he has a normal MCV at 82. Um, his uh, differential is uh, unremarkable. He did have 6.7% uh, EOs, but his absolute eosinophil count is less than 500. As it's at 290. His LFTs, he has no transaminitis. He has normal bilies, um, and he uh, his total protein 6.9, and his albumin 4.2 does not have a protein gap. His ALK-PLOS is normal. Um, he also has a normal PTT and INR. So overall, um, you know, looking at his lab, they're pretty unrevealing and don't really help much, um, at least to me. What, what sort of like, what do you guys think about these labs and um, what would you like next for this patient? Yeah, I agree. You know, not hugely revealing. I think in the same way that the history was, sometimes what's not there can be helpful too. You know, he doesn't have a marked leukocytosis and with no neutrophil predominance. The fact that this would be an acute bacterial pneumonia is much, much less likely in that case. Um, he has a bicarb that's a slightly elevated at 27. I, this could be abnormal in some retention, but it's probably just in the range of normal. Um, we could We could check it with a blood gas. Uh, you mentioned his eosinophil. I agree. The absolute eosinophil count is less than 500, you know, probably less likely to be a primary eosinophilic disorder. I will say anything above 200, uh, I do keep in mind that you can get organ infiltration and, and organ damage with that. So it's still very possible that well, could be related to his underlying asthma. You mentioned that LFT is being normal and albumin actually, which is normal too, which is just interesting in a patient who has a weight loss of 30 pounds. You know, it makes me think that malignancy and, you know, real significant malnutrition is a little bit less likely on the differential, uh, just something to note. Um, uh, and we, we don't have anything here that tells us that he has signs of a you know, chronic inflammatory condition or infection. I would probably want uh, inflammatory markers just to kind of see where he's at. Uh, ESR and CRP to see what his chronic inflammation has been like. Great. That's awesome. I want to pull up the chest x-ray next, and I was hoping, Monty, you can kind of take us through the chest x-ray. Yeah, of course, Ansa, and we'll definitely post this um, so that you can follow along with us. Um, but based on my read, um, I am, I would consider this an overall good film. Uh, you know, the penetration looks appropriate. And I would say overall normal inflation. Um, so normal lung volumes um, in this patient. So I'm, I'm saying that because I see 10 posterior ribs. And remember, we want to see eight to 10 posterior ribs to make sure that it's normal inflation. Um, going to the airway next, I think that the trachea um, appears overall midline. Um, I'm not seeing any bony abnormalities. Um, looking at the heart borders, the right and left cardiac borders um, are both apparent to me. Um, so I'm not concerned necessarily um, about cardiomegaly um, or anything obscuring either the right or left heart border. Um, as far as the um, right costophrenic angle, there's some, or it, it appears visible to me, but looking at the left costophrenic angle, um, I think that there's some blunting, so suggesting a possible underlying effusion. And as far as the actual parenchyma itself, it does there does appear to be some bilateral interstitial markings, um, more so in, at least looking at this on my screen, more so in the bases um, than in the upper lobes. And there appears to be some significant bilateral hilar adenopathy. Thank you so much for walking us through this. And like you said, we'll have this posted for everyone to sort of review with us uh, when they're listening. Um, uh, the patient at, you know, at this point, we get a bit more information about this infusion, as you pointed out, and there seems to be some chronicity to this. Um, so the patient says that about a few months ago, he was actually uh, traveling to the DR and he had sort of similar symptoms um, of cough and some left-sided 
a pleuritic chest pain. Um, and he went to the hospital and was treated with some antibiotics and was told that he had fluid in his lungs, which was removed. Um, so presuming that he had a thoracentesis at this time, we unfortunately don't have any other data from that visit and sort of what was thought to be the etiology of this effusion. That, that's really helpful um, information, Ansa. And I think, you know, definitely um, trying to get as um, much history as we can from this patient is important. Um, and, you know, specifically in this, you know, determining, um, you know, what side was the fluid removed from, you know, if it's his left, you know, we can think it's more of a recurrent effusion. If it was on the right, um, you know, that may make also change our differential as well. So definitely want to try to get that. As part of the next um, point of workup for him, I definitely want to get a CT chest to better characterize the lymphadenopathy that we see on his chest x-ray. Um, in addition to better um, defining the parenchymal findings that we saw, as well as confirm the presence of the left pleural effusion that was suggested on his x-ray. So the patient actually gets a chest CT next, um, and we'll have these images available for everyone to review with us. And I'm just going to go through sort of some of the notable findings that there were, and um, there were quite a lot. Um, so the most notable thing on the chest CT was diffuse mediastinal and bilateral hilar adenopathy. Uh, which was definitely intrigued by interest. And then as well as um, they characterized the left-sided pleural effusion we're seeing on the chest x-ray as moderate and with likely pleural implants as well. He has a 1.1 centimeter nodule in his right upper lobe, as well as some nodular septal thickening in the lungs bilaterally, which was suggestive of, um, to the radiologist, lymphangetic carcinomatosis. Um, additionally, he has like many other um, findings, incidental findings, including multi-level paravertebral soft tissue densities along his mid-thoracic spine. Uh, and it doesn't end there. There's more. <laughs> they also noted this large lipomatous lesion in his lower pelvis, and it seemed to be impinging on the bladder and displacing it posteriorly. Um, and given the location, there was some concern that this could be a low-grade liposarcoma. So in addition to the test CT, he also, um, uh, this, like the findings sort of that, that, um, that I was reading where it was a chest CT as well as as a CT abdomen pelvis. So they weren't seeing the pelvic lesion on his chest CT. I didn't mean to make that impression. And in addition on his CT abdomen pelvis, he had, um, uh, lymphadenopathy sort of diffusely, but mo most noticeable in his paraceliac and portahepatous region. So there's obviously a lot going on with this chest CT and gives us a lot more information as well as the CT of his abdomen and pelvis. Um, and especially I thought the diffuse, very pronounced lymphadenopathy was interesting. Dave, what do you make? Yeah, that's certainly quite the quite the CAT scan and read that we have there. You know, in these situations, I do like to take a step back at this point and sort of just summarize where I'm at to give my thoughts in line. You know, so this is a 57-year-old man, relatively healthy, past medical history of hypertension and mild asthma, who's been traveling back and forth in the Dominican Republic and presents with three weeks of dyspnea and left-sided pleuritic chest pain in the setting of a more chronic dry cough and 30 pounds of weight loss. He has a physical exam notable for relatively normal vital signs, mild tachypnea, and findings possibly consistent with a pleural effusion and laboratory evaluation that's pretty normal on basic CBC, CMP, BMP. His imaging then reveals a left-sided pleural fusion and diffuse lymphadenopathy, also pleural implants, and then multiple other findings, sort of soft tissue densities along his spine and some findings in his abdomen and pelvis that we have to work through. So taking that, you know, we have a patient here, he's had lymphadenopathy, he's had weight loss, now a recurrent pleural effusion, and all of this is, you know, pretty extremely important to thinking about his case. So right now his differential is really broad. You know, we don't know that much about this guy yet. It makes me interested about what his underlying immune status is. And I would sort of put his differential into three broad categories at this point, based on the lymphadenopathy and these symptoms. So the first is infection. He could have a systemic infection leading to lymph node response throughout his body or leading to a recurrent pleural fusion. Uh, things like tuberculosis, things like endemic fungal infections, histoplasmosis could do this, or viral infections. He could have HIV as an underlying diagnosis, which would cause diffuse lymphadenopathy, and then a superimposed infection, infection on top of it. 
you know, CMV, EBV, if you were immunosuppressed and there's some reason we don't know about this, then these things could cause sort of this type of reaction as well. The other broad category would be malignancy for sure. Lymphoma absolutely could present this way. Uh, lymphoproliferative diseases definitely can have this indolent onset where he's going forward. Uh, and then now he's progressed to having a pleural effusion and that's what brought him in. Also, inflammatory conditions, connective tissue diseases, and rheumatologic diseases could definitely do the same thing. Sarcoidosis can cause lymphadenopathy all over. Effusions are a little unusual, like unilateral effusions in sarcoid, but possible. Lupus, RA can have these types of manifestations. And then I think there are these rare uh, primary sort of lymph adenopathy diseases, Castleman's disease, Kikuchi disease that can cause a presentation like this. So, you know, I think his differential right now is really broad. And now we have to start thinking about what labs can we get and what tissue can we start targeting to give us a, a little bit more. Ant. Great. That was such a great differential for him. So I think we need a little bit more information to help us narrow our differential. So as a next step for him, Monty, um, do you think he should undergo a thoracentesis? Thanks, Ansa. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, you know, this is, I'm, I'm considering him as a new case to us. You know, we don't have any prior imaging. Um, and I know that he said he had drainage before, um, but we, we don't have any records of that. So I am considering this to be, you know, somewhat of a new effusion. Um, and I would say an overall, based on imaging, a new moderate size pleural effusion in a patient presenting with weight loss and cough. And definitely, um, doing a diagnostic thoracentesis to help determine the etiology um, and a unilateral effusion is important. And as Dave mentioned, there's a super broad differential at this time. Um, the two, two things that I'm thinking of right now are infection as well as malignancy. Okay, excellent. Um, so I guess just thinking about pleural effusion for this patient, um, we can quickly review sort of, you know, how we approach our, our, our um, uh, differential for a, a pleural effusion. And I think of it in um, two large buckets, um, transudative and exudative. And like you said, um, the uh, uh, thoracentesis and fluid studies are going to be extremely helpful in making that diagnosis. So sort of the common, you know, causes of transudative effusion that we think of are um, heart failure, liver disease, ESRD, uh, nephrotic syndrome. Um, whereas for exudative, we're thinking more of infection, cancer, and autoimmune processes as well. Um, sort of thinking of more rare causes, Dave and Monty, like, you know, which I'm sure you guys have seen um, through through uh, your experiences, like chylothorax, um, et cetera. Does that commonly present as an exudative effusion or transudative? Yeah, that's usually presenting as an exudative effusion. And I think when you're getting to some of those more rare uh, etiologies, then you're starting looking at cell counts and then some of the um, more esoteric labs that you can send on the pleural fluid, you know, like triglycerides and cholesterol levels to help you with that. Um, but I think uh, the common ones, like the transudative and exudative, like you mentioned, at least we just need the pleural protein, serum protein, pleural LDH and serum LDH so we can do uh, a basic analysis of it. That's awesome. And do you ever sort of like think about like, you know, unilateral sort of like the laterality if it's right-sided versus left-sided and do you know sort of makes you think of like certain diagnoses as or like certain yeah, I definitely think, I mean, I, I know we were recently consulted on someone with underlying liver failure um, with a hepatic hydrothorax. So definitely, you know, more so occurring on the right side. Um, and you know, one thing that I also think of more so for the left side, though, typically the, the classic teaching is more so um, pancreatitis or potentially esophageal rupture. Um, and you brought up an uh, interesting point about the chylothorax. We recently um, saw that a couple of weeks ago, too. Um, and there's some differences on on what side that occurs on. We actually saw it on the left, though. Um, and to answer the question, yeah, it was transudative, but there are I'm sorry, it was exudative, um, but chylothorax can be exudative just based on protein and not LDH. So lo lots of things to lots of things to talk about with pleural effusions for sure. 
patient uh, does undergo a diagnostic thoracentesis, and um, we have the results that I want to go over with you. And then I'm hoping that Dave, you'll be able to help us sort of interpret these. So his pleural protein is 5.6 and his pleural LDH is 162. His serum protein is 6.9, as we reviewed earlier, and his serum LDH is 189. Um, and his pleural glucose was 114. Um, he did have 4,000 RBCs um, and he had 3,000 nucleated cells, 2% PMN, 65% lymphocytes, and 17% EOs. Um, so Dave, if you can sort of walk us through, do you think this is an exudative or a transudative um, effusion based on the LIGHTS criteria um, and what you make of the rest of the studies? Definitely. So you mentioned it. LIGHTS criteria is what we use to look for transudative versus exudative. You know, these were discovered clinically and described by Dr. Light. And there have been multiple other studies going forward about trying to use other metrics, but this is still the best one that we have for transudate and exudate. So to review, LIGHTS criteria is that first we look at pleural protein over the serum protein. And if it's greater than 0.5 is the number we care about. And then we look at pleural LDH and we care about two things there. Is the pleural LDH over the serum LDH ratio greater than 0.6 or is the pleural LDH greater than two thirds the upper limit normal of the serum LDH cutoff uh, at your lab or hospital? And all you have to do is meet one of these criteria and you have uh, an exudative effusion. It increases your probability. So for this patient, they are meeting all three of these criteria. So Pleural fluid LDH over serum LDH is greater than 0.6 and higher than two-thirds upper limit and normal, and the protein is higher than 0.5. So I think this is an exudative effusion. The next things that I think you should always send when doing a thoracentesis and analyze the pleural fusion, really important to send pH. You know, I think if there's a concern for infection, you can diagnose empyema just on pH alone. So pH less than 7.2, at least being a complex paranoiotic effusion, and the lower that pH being more concerned for an empyema, lower than seven, I get very concerned. Um, in a chronic effusion, that can be a little bit lower if the fluid's just been sitting there, but it's very helpful. So his pH was 7.45, and it makes me less concerned that there's an active empyema in there. And then you mentioned the glucose. That's helpful as well. His glucose was uh, got to be considered relative to his serum, but it was 114, likely pretty normal in a patient who has had a very chronic effusion or a infected pleural space, that glucose level may be lower. And then finally, I always want to look at the cell count. So you mentioned the percentage of nucleated cells. He has a lymphocytic predominant effusion, 65% lymphocytes. Uh, this is helpful for a variety of reasons, kind of looking through what our underlying etiologies are. So, you know, first of all, if it's going to be an empyema infected bacterial uh, infection in the pleural space, you usually th think of a PMN predominance. Lymphocytes can be present in malignancy, sort of the most common presenting uh, dominant cell type, also in inflammatory conditions with lupus or RA that are causing a pleural effusion there. Uh, eosinophilia can be helpful. They can be from prior eosinophilic disorder, but also just trauma and pleural irritation can lead to an eosinophilia uh, in the pleural space. So it's something we consider, but definitely looking at uh, the differential is helpful going forward. So he has a lymphocytic predominant exudative effusion. Um, I think that, you know, while infection was still on our differential, an acute pneumonia and bacterial infection is a little bit lower. Things that I'm thinking about for him with his lymphadenopathy, we know of as well, certainly malignancy could still be very high up in this. I'd want to send this fluid for cytology to see if they can identify any cells that are concerning for uh, a cancer. Um, highly lymphocytic pleural fusions can also uh, be due to tuberculosis, which is still our differential. Um, we have some other tests we can send in the pleural fluid to try to get at that. One they talk about is ADA, although it's probably a pretty tricky test to interpret. And the best is just to send um, uh, the fluid for AFB smear and grow it out in culture. Uh, other things that can cause a highly lymphocytic predominant effusion uh, are sarcoidosis. Again, it's rare in sarcoid to have this, but it can be to do it. Rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and then you talked about chylothorax. That's usually a lymphocytic predominant as well. So I think for this patient, I would definitely send this fluid for cytology. You can even send it for flow cytometry if there's a high concern um, uh, for lymphoma. And, and in his case, is probably right. 
and I think that without the fluid appearing like uh, uh, white or milky, a chylothorax is less likely and a little bit less likely to explain his lymphadenopathy, although it can happen in systemic disorders. So we could send a triglycerides and a cholesterol level just to sort of to rule it all out. Um, but yeah, I think this was super helpful. And with these further tests coming in cultures, uh, we should get some more information. This is super helpful. So um, very interesting about the pH sort of cutoff. So the, what you mentioned earlier, I thought it was interesting. So if the the pleural fluid has been sitting out for a while and the pH returns really low, I guess it sort of could mislead you. Is that correct? I think that is always this thing that comes with like a, with, with pH tests. Like it's like, oh, did the, the fluid sit out and where did it go? I would say that if you see uh, a thing of low pH in pleural fluid, I would get, I would treat it as real. Um, the concern is if it's been a chronic effusion for a long, long time, the pH could be low because, you know, the cells have been in there and dying. But, you know, I would say that if there's concern and you have a pH less than 7.2, I would treat it as a complex pyroneumonic effusion. Um, one other interesting thing that sort of caught my attention was the pleural eosinophilia. Monty, I was wondering if you can comment on that. Yeah, um, definitely. And I will admit also that that's not something that I have typically seen in the pleural fluid studies that I have done, um, but definitely something I think worth talking about briefly. Um, so uh, eosinophilic pleural effusion is typically defined as a pleural effusion that contains more than 10% eosinophils. And really looking into this, it's only um, accounts for about 5 to 10% of pleural effusions total. And Firf already briefly mentioned, you know, one of the one of the causes or conditions that can result in a, a eosinophilic pleural effusion is introduction of air um, in our blood into the pleural space. Um, so even uh, so, pneumothorax itself, or post-thoracic surgeries, or even um, simply performing a thoracentesis itself, has been thought to be possible causes. Um, again, with everything and, um, you know, kind of the theme with this patient, there could be a lot of different reasons why um, he may have this, but some other things that are coming to mind um, specifically um, still high on our differential for him is malignancy um, infections, which can be both um, bacterial, fungal, or even parasitic, um, pleural irritation or trauma, as we mentioned, um, broad category of autoimmune disease, uh, acute or chronic eosinophilic pneumonia. Definitely can also be drug related. And the three drugs that I try to remember with this um, are warfarin, nitrofurantoin, as well as fluoxetine. And then the other one that I remember is uh, another reason why is a pulmonary um, embolism or PE. It's very interesting. Um, so I guess sort of rounding out additional data for this patient, he does sort of get like some of the additional tests that um, Davey had mentioned on his pleural fluid was sent for cytology and is negative for any malignant cell as well as flow of cytometry that was also negative. Um, so at this point, um, sort of rounding out some additional data that, you know, the uh, he had um, uh, some uh, workups in for the endemic fungi. So he had histoplasma urine antigen that was sent that was negative. Um, he had blasto and coccidioides antibodies that were sent that were also negative. His fungitel was less than 31, which is negative per our lab. Um, and he also had an aspergillus galactamenin sent that was negative as well. Um, so it sort of a lot of the data starts coming back and m not revealing of much at this time. So what should be our next step from here? Yeah, so now he's had sort of a broader workup for uh, inflammatory infectious conditions. We've gone to the pleural fluid and not got an answer. You know, I think he probably warrants a, a little bit more workup for his connective tissue disorder or potential rheumatologic diseases, you know, at least an A and uh, A, maybe some complement levels and starting to see if he has any antibodies that pop up. But short of that, I think, you know, tissue is the issue as it goes, right? So he has a recurrent pleural fusion and he has pleural uh, nodules seen on scan that can't be normal and is probably the reason for it. And then he has this diffuse lymphadenopathy. So whatever we can get uh, a t access to tissue, I think we probably should. Um, and sort of, as you mentioned, um, you know, tissue is what we want. And at this point, you know, uh, the patient's evaluated uh, uh, again by the pulmonary 
uh, team and he undergoes a bronchoscopy with um, endobronchial ultrasound and it shows no malignant cells. Um, and he also does get a transbronchial FNA of his uh, left hilar lymph node. And um, the pathology on that was interesting um, and it was uh, noted to have uh, granulomas on the biopsy. So, which is like a very interesting development at this point for this patient. Um, and Monty, how does that change our differential um, or narrow our differential among the many things that we discuss for this patient? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is is helpful in in certain aspects because um, you know there's this there's a still a broad category for a granulomatous disease, and you know if you can, I don't think it was mentioned, but you know were these caseating or non caseating granulomas? I think is important to to understand when we have that data as well. But thinking of granulomatous disease, um, you know, FERF has already mentioned TB. Um, so I think that's definitely still there. Um, sarcoidosis, um, again, is um, high on the differential. Uh, histoplasmosis, as well as blastomycosis are as well. Um, still thinking, um, you know, Hodgkin's lymphoma um, can still be there, as well as um, rheumatoid arthritis. Great. That's a great differential for sort of like the, the path findings for this biopsy. So as I reviewed earlier, um, you know, a lot of the uh, um, serology for the endemic fungi, including blastomycosis, were all negative. Um, he had a negative RPR. He also had autoimmune workups, and including ANA and ANCAs, which were all negative as well. Um, and given this diffuse lymphadenopathy, the 30-pound weight loss, um, and sort of this um, pelvic mass that was seen on imaging, I think there was very high suspicion for a malignancy. So the patient did undergo a PET CT and had um, sort of very uh, multiple sort of FDG avid uh, lymphadenopathy, which was noted. Um, and at this point, you know, sort of like I think heightened the sort of concern for a malignant process for this patient. Um, and and at this point, sort of what would you recommend for? So I, I like to take, again, a step back for a patient like this. So 57-year-old man, pleuritic chest pain and dyspnea, found to have diffuse FDG-avid lymphadenopathy with pleural studying and recurrent pleural fusion, and a lymph node biopsy showing granulomas. So our differential is definitely narrowed significantly. I think he's had a really good infectious workup, and we don't see anything. So I think we can put those aside at this point. He also has had a pretty good serologic workup for connective tissue diseases uh, or immunologic disorders, and all that seems negative. So even though these could all be consistent, no evidence of that right now. I think malignancy still has to be number one, two, and three, given the FDG avidity and that it's a can't-miss diagnosis and that, that those can cause granulomas as well. But we also have to think about sarcoid. You know, it's a benign granulomatous disorder. Fusions are a little unusual, like we talked about, but he has pleural studying, and it can definitely cause diffuse lymphadenopathy like this. Uh, I would not hang my hat on sarcoid, even though the biopsy would be consistent with it right now. Uh, given that he has so much avidity, I would really want to rule out malignancy. And then finally, even though the AFB has been negative so far, you know, TB can be a really sneaky uh, organism and can be hard to make the diagnosis. So I think right now I'm down to uh, diffuse malignancy, really lymphoma is what I'm worried about, uh, TB that we've not been able to diagnose, uh, and sarcoidosis as the differential for this. So I would want to get more tissue. I know we already have some, but I think it's time for him to have a, a larger biopsy and not just a sampling. And so I would see what the most successful lymph node he could have was, maybe a mediastinoscopy, to biopsy at least one, if not a couple lymph nodes, uh, and see if we can uh, make a diagnosis. Could go after the pleural implants too, but it's probably a little bit harder and that's exactly what um, what's done for this patient next. Actually, um, he does go uh, mediastinoscopy and biopsy and um, of one of these hilar lymph nodes, actually. And um, the, here is the path result. So there's extensive non-necrotizing granulomatous inflammation, which is highly suggestive of sarcoidosis. Um, his AFB and gram stains are completely negative again for sort of like the culture is in his flow cytometry and um, it was again also negative and and no um, uh, cells uh, abnormal cells concerning for a neoplasm and ultimately um, the path was thought to be most consistent with sarcoids 
Cool. Sarcoid is, is uh, the great mimicker and the thing that comes up all the time. I mean, I think these are the cases that are always a little anxiety provoking. You want to rule out all these things, but now you've gotten tissue multiple times and we have sarcoidosis. So, you know, what is sarcoidosis? It's a granulomatous disease. We don't know all that much about the underlying etiology. Uh, we know it's immune mediated and then you get these granulomas, most commonly in the lungs and the peripulmonary uh, lymphatic tissue, uh, but it can be anywhere in the body. It usually presents in young people, typically between ages of 20 and 60, uh, and approximately 10 years earlier in African-Americans than in uh, white Americans in the United States who present with it. Uh, it can affect anywhere in the body, but the most common presentation is bilateral hyalur adenopathy. And often this is asymptomatic. It's just something that's seen on imaging. Uh, and women are twice as likely as men to have this diagnosis. About 30% of the time, it presents with extrathoracic manifestations of sarcoid. And the most common ones outside of the lungs are skin, joint, and eye lesions. And the classic rash that you'll hear about on boards is sort of this very tender rash on the shins, erythema nodosum. But respiratory symptoms are the most common, nonspecific, cough, shortness of breath, sometimes chest pain if you uh, have sort of bulky disease, a little rarely. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the treatment, but we want to think about the extent of disease when we have it. And like we talked about, everybody who has sarcoid needs a little bit of a rule out or for some other, other factors. So everyone needs to have TB testing. And then aside from that, we want to evaluate for any disease uh, process that they may have. Aside from that, we also want to see the extent of disease they have. So everybody who has a sarcoid diagnosis needs at least a CAT scan, PFTs, an EKG because they can get cardiac involvement, an eye exam, and then monitoring of their blood counts as well as uh, vitamin D and calcium. Very interesting. The initial presentation with the pleural effusion, is that very common? Do you see that a lot? No, it's definitely rare. I mean, it's not even on my differential for like a unilateral perfusion. I, I guess it's on the differential, but it's really low. It's very unusual for sarcoid um, uh, to present that way. That being said, you know, you have tissue that, that shows it. That's going to be it. We could confirm it with a pleural biopsy, but I, it, it's rare, but not unheard of. Monty, have you seen it before? Yeah, I've seen one case, but I definitely agree it's it's rare. And I know in one of our other cases, we brought up Dr. Peter Terry, who's one of our senior faculty um, at Hopkins, and he um, has always said that um, just be just include broad differentials when you do see an effusion, um, just because you want to rule out everything else before saying that it's sarcoid. Um, so per his suggestion as well, it's something that is not typically seen, um, but there are some cases where um, that that has been noted. Um, one other sort of, you know, I think that's invoked a lot in the question that comes up all the time is the question of serum ACE levels and how helpful they really are. Um, Monty, how do you sort of approach that question and how helpful do you find them? Yeah, honestly, I think um, I think the ACE levels kind <laughs> of take me back to step one. Um, I remember <laughs> I remember studying for it and this was always coming the up. The golden um, age yeah. of step one, your favorite time. <laughs> Yeah, so ACE level, um, our angiotensin converting enzyme, is um, it's basically, when I remember learning, it's a serum marker used in sarcoid. Um, and on step, it would always say, you know, derived from epithelioid cells from activated macrophages. And while ACE levels, um, they basically correlate with the amount of whole body granulomas, you know, so not just necessarily the ones um, found in the lungs, um, but but everywhere and disease severity. But it's important to note that it can also be elevated in other non-sarcoid conditions as well. So some of the ones that we've talked about um, include tuberculosis, um, coccidiomycosis, uh, as well as silicosis, and even hyperthyroidism is one that I, I remember hearing. So overall, it's used, it's a marker for sarc that's used in sarcoid, but it doesn't have the greatest sensitivity or specificity either. So while an elevated level may be helpful for overall um, disease burden, um, you have to look at the entire clinical picture. That's super helpful. So I guess my takeaway is that it can be elevated in many of the different granulomatous processes. So if you're trying to differentiate among several of them, this may not be the most helpful test. That's exactly right. Okay, awesome. So I guess I wonder then, what is the diagnostic test for a sarcoid or, or does one exist? 
That's a great question. Um, and yeah, to my to my knowledge, um, there it one does not exist. Um, and there's actually a great um, kind of publication from the American Thoracic Society um, that was published in 2020, where they talk about the diagnosis and detection of sarcoid. Um, and really per this guideline, I remember three things from it, um, you know, and while there's not a definitive diagnostic test for sarcoid, um, you really want to look at three key elements when you're diagnosing someone. Um, and the first one, you know, is there a compatible clinical presentation? So this is not only supported by imaging, um, but also physical exam. Uh, the second um, is the detection of non-necrotizing granulomatous inflammation um, in one or more tissue samples. You know, while this sometimes can be um, primarily from the lungs and like our patient that had EBUS and then media stenoscopy, you can also do sometimes um, more of a cutaneous um, sample as well if someone's presenting with rash, as Firth mentioned earlier. And really the third um, part of this is um, what we've done for this patient and definitely exclusion of other diseases that may present similarly. So overall, to answer your question, no definitive diagnostic test, but those three key parameters that we try to look at. Um, so speaking of step one, actually, I was just thinking it reminded me of sort of like a, a step one or you world question must have done sort of this like tri uh, triad of symptoms that you see. And sometimes if that's your acute presentation, it's consistent with sarcoids that you don't need a clinical diagnosis. Maybe Dave Ramon, do you remember what I'm talking about? It's like at the tip of my tongue. It's like, you know, when you have the skin finding of erythema nodosum, fever, and I think bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy that it's like diagnostic of sarcoids. Am I making that up? Yeah, no, you're not making it up at all. That, so that uh, one of the presentations that sometimes gets quoted a lot is this Lofgren syndrome, uh, that where you have swollen lymph nodes in the chest, lymphadenopathy, you have erythema nodosum on your shins, and then uh, a fever and some arthritis. And actually, it has a pretty good prognosis. Lofgren syndrome often uh, is not something that leads to long-term severe sarcoid. Uh, it usually recedes and responds to treatment well. So uh, yeah, Lofgren syndrome could be our eponym for the day. Love it. And I also do remember speaking of step one and taking me back to med school, uh, learning about sort of radiological stages of sarcoids. Dave, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. You know, this comes up a lot. I think it's important to remember that these are not stages that everybody sort of progresses through. It, it's usually a, a method that we use to sort of characterize the amount of disease that they have, but it's not like everyone goes from uh, zero to one to two to three to four. So zero is just a normal chest x-ray. One is like this patient, if he didn't have the effusion, just bilateral hyaluronopathy um, uh, and mediastinal lymph node enlargement. So this is the most common presentation and we'll talk about treatment in a second, but this is a good prognosis. You know, a lot of these patients, about 75 to 80% of people who just have stage one disease are not going to ever require treatment for their sarcoid. Um, it's a disease that can often burn out and it may not progress past this. Stage two would be bilateral hyalur adenopathy and reticular opacities. Usually this is upper lobe predominant that you have them. Stage three is when you just have the reticular opacities, but actually no hyalur adenopathy or, or it's shrinking down. And then stage four is really when you have, I, I think, fibrotic lung disease. I think classically it's reticular opacities and uh, no hyalur adenopathy and then volume loss, but really this is just pulmonary fibrosis and sort of the, the most severe uh, form of pulmonary sarcoid that you get. Uh, so speaking of actually treatment, Monty, can you talk a little bit about um, how we treat pulmonary sarcoid? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and I think one one point that Firth brought up um, worth mentioning uh, specifically in our case is that, you know, patients that presenting and are given a diagnosis of sarcoid um, with asymptomatic lymph node involvement generally have self-limited disease and don't actually require um, treatment, you know, so this could be stage one or even stage, stage two, as Firth mentioned, um, you know, in some literature supporting that up to 50% of patients um, with sarcoid fit into this category. So when, when you're deciding to initiate treatment for someone, you really want to do it um, to make sure that you're going to be helping with symptom management, as well as to protect um, overall organ function. And as we've talked about, sarcoid can be um, a multi-system disease and, and affect various organs. Um, you know, palm peeps today, we're thinking more of the lungs, but can affect um, the eyes, the skin, um, the brain, as well as the heart, as we talked about earlier. 
Um, and the, the key to treatment, though, is really to help with the heightened immune response that's present uh, with sarcoid, as well as to prevent any further granuloma formation. Um, so really the first line agent um, that I think about um, and here, and y'all are probably familiar with as well, is systemic corticosteroids. And, you know, I know when we're talking about medications and specifically steroids for anything, um, something that always comes up is how many MIGs per per keg per day and what's the taper like. <laughs> um, and I, I think with sarcoid too, there, there's going to be probably some institutional as well as clinician stylist, stylistic differences. Um, but typically first line agent starting prednisone 20 to 40 milligrams per day. And this can be higher if symptoms are more severe or if there are multiple organ organs involved. Um, so, you, you know, you may have concurrent cardiac and our pulmonary sarcoid, and I've seen starting doses of up to 60 in those cases. Uh, but typically, as I said, 20 to 40 milligrams per day. And this is continued for about four to six weeks um, with close follow-up and interval assessment of the patient. So definitely getting PFTs, um, symptom management as well, and you can repeat imaging. Um, so if the patient um, is doing well in four to six weeks, I like to think of start about starting to taper and decreasing by about five to 10 milligrams every one to three months with a, with a goal to get to about 10 to 15 milligrams a day. Um, and that, again, is always going to be um, balanced with interval assessment and follow-up. And I think the overall goal is to get to a maintenance dose of about 10 milligrams per day. And this may take up to a year to do. Um, and I know um, um, answer are, are first. I'm not sure if y'all have seen anything different um, as far as that goes. No, that's pretty typical. I think, you know, again, I think that different people have slight variations, but uh, at least six months, you know, I, I think of wanting someone like this gentleman who has sort of diffuse disease to be on steroids and then very slowly tapering, uh, monitoring the clinical symptoms and then sometimes the imaging as well. So um, actually, that's exactly what happens with our patient who started on prednisone and responded really well. He actually did end up going follow-up imaging with a PET scan in three months that showed that all of sort of the FDG-AVID pulmonary nodules and the lymphadenopathy that we were seeing was significantly improved. And he was able to be tapered uh, to the maintained dose of 10 milligrams eventually. Um, and, you know, and I think in addition to steroids, um, you know, definitely that's the first slight first line agent that's used, but you have to think of, you know, what if steroids aren't working or what if someone is having complications secondary to steroids and can't um, take them? So some second line agents are really more what we call steroid sparing agents. And three common ones um, are methotrexate, azathioprine, as well as mycophenolate. Um, and I tend to think of this, um, you know, these potentially may need to be started if a patient is on greater than 10 milligrams per day for greater than three months and cannot tolerate glucocorticoids. And that could be for a variety of reasons, but some common reasons may be hyperglycemia, underlying bone disease, um, you know, specifically if someone gets a fracture, um, hypertension or weight gain, um, or fluid buildup. Um, so those are some things that, you know, may contraindicate um, higher doses of corticosteroids. So those are when I start to think about potentially needing a second line agent, um, as well as if a patient relapses. And the third line agents, um, which this is really going to involve multidisciplinary um, care team discussions, um, are really biologics. So monoclonal antibodies targeted against TNF-alpha itself, so such as infliximab and adalimumab, um, and these are more so used in refractory disease. And again, these are going to be um, getting a lot of um, teams' involvements um, about whether or not you should do this as part of a third-line agent therapy for refractory disease. That's such a great summary. And this patient actually was started on prednisone, and I believe is at 40 milligrams, and he had a great response to that and, and responded really well to that. One point that I want to come back to, Monty, that you mentioned was um, the utility of PFTs in this patient who had no parenchymal involvement, at least from the chest CT and x-ray that we saw. Would you recommend that he get that outpatient once he's discharged. Yeah, um, you definitely want to get PFTs in this patient. And, you know, sometimes with sarcoid, you can see um, different things as we talked about. So you may actually see more of a mixed um, obstructive as well as restrictive um, 
finding on PFTs for him, but definitely want to, I would want to get a full set. So including spirometry, um, lung volumes, and specifically DLCO in someone with sarcoid and follow those um, periodically. And then as Firth mentioned too, um, repeating um, imaging as well would be important. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, wow. What an unusual presentation of sarcoidosis. That was definitely not where I thought this case would be leading. Um, but now it's on my differential for an exudative uh, pleural effusion. Uh, one pearl that I'm taking away from this case is serum ACE is a limited utility as a diagnostic test for sarcoids and due to its poor sensitivity and can be elevated, as you mentioned, Monty, and many other granulomatous disease. Monty, what's your pearl from this case? Well, I think I'm definitely going to take FIRF's um, tissue is the issue um, <laughs> motto going forward. Um, and I think one important thing is um, that not all sarcoid requires treatment. Yeah. Mine, I think, is always just going back to pleural effusions. New unilateral effusion definitely warrants a tap. And then we use lights criteria uh, to see if this is a transient exudate. And then I always say for the first time to get pH, glucose, and a differential, I think that really helps with the diagnosis. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks, everyone, for joining for another episode of Palm Peeps. Uh, really appreciate it. Come back in two weeks for our next episode. This episode was uh, written, recorded, and edited by myself, Christina Montemayor, and Ansar Razak, and the music is original music by Eric.